The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The U.S. Federal Reserve is arguably the most important force in global finance, whether Chair Jay Powell likes it or not. So when he recently announced at this year's virtual Jackson Hole Conference that the central bank would be tweaking its monetary policy framework, including shifting towards average inflation targeting, everyone took note. So I'm very excited to explore this and the more recent FOMC meeting with David Kelly, JP Morgan Asset Management's Chief Global Strategist. Welcome. Glad to be here. So before we get into the more recent FOMC meeting, let's go back and maybe talk about a little bit about what happened at Jackson Hole. Well, yeah, so the, the Federal Reserve for a number of years has been reviewing its strategy, and it's been very unhappy about the fact that inflation is running too low. Um, and it feels that one of the reasons inflation has been running low is because uh, inflation expectations have been running low. And so part of what the Federal Reserve is looking at here is what can they do to make people think that inflation is going to be higher, given that it has been low for so long? And I think, I think one question is, well, okay, what can they do? But second of all, why should they care that much? I mean, low inflation sounds like a reasonably good thing. Uh-huh. But the Federal Reserve's view is, well, if you have really low inflation and really low interest rates, and that's where you are when you get into some trouble, then you can't really cut interest rates to help the economy out. So you're much better off with a somewhat higher level of inflation and interest rates at the start, uh, but that requires you to have higher inflation and higher inflation expectations. So this is all in an effort uh, to push up inflation by pushing up inflation expectations. And that's why they've moved to this um, uh, average inflation targeting strategy. So I think one of the responses I've heard to this is, well, the Fed has essentially been incapable of raising inflation to 2%. So why on earth should we think that they're going to be able to raise it to more than 2%? And I think that's a, that's a very reasonable skepticism. Uh, I mean, not only has the Federal Reserve not succeeded in raising inflation to 2%, but that has been a long-standing goal of the Bank of Japan, and they haven't succeeded. It's also been a goal of the uh, European Central Bank, and they haven't got there. So why does, why does the Fed think they'll even get there, or why, do, why should people believe them? And I think, actually, this time, I do believe them. And it, it, it's for a, a completely different reason. It's not about how, you know, the Fed's traditional monetary policy. It's about how they've been interacting with the federal government during this pandemic. Because since this pandemic, they have uh, engaged in what they're going to call quantitative easing, uh, which is buying uh, treasuries and other long-term securities to push down long-term interest rates. But really what they're doing is they are enabling the federal government to run massive budget deficits without having to pay the penalty of higher interest rates. Uh, And so what I think has happened is the federal government, and I I think the administration and the Democrats and the Republicans in Congress are already part of this, they have all moved to a much more expansionary mode or uh, uh, viewpoint with regard to fiscal policy. And that can be very powerful. Monetary policy in its own isn't powerful. It's mm-hmm. not going to lift a thing. Because, you know, I mean, if you think about it, does, do business people sit on the edge of their seats on the idea that the Federal Reserve might cut interest rates by right. one quarter of one percent, and then they decide, yes, let's go for it, let's build this, <laughs> let's build that? No, they don't. But if the Federal Reserve lends the federal government a trillion dollars or two trillion dollars, and the federal government hands that out in one-time checks 
or in unemployment benefits or in paying for more healthcare infrastructure, that can be very powerful. So monetary policy can be very powerful at stimulating both growth and inflation if it's used essentially to enable the federal government to spend more money. And that's what I think is going on right now. And that's why, uh, contrary to the skepticism of many other observers, I actually think the Federal Reserve will succeed in pushing inflation above 2%. The Fed has been so successful at calming the markets, at bringing back liquidity. Asset prices have gone up quite high. We don't see this tanking stock market. The pressure on Congress to act has actually seemed to come down. So I completely agree with you that having lower rates should enable far more spending, but I wonder if it actually will. Well, of course, fiscal policy isn't just spending more money. Fiscal policy can also be cutting taxes. Mm -hmm. um, and what's happened for many years, well, first of all, for many years, most of the last 20 or 30 years, we've had divided government. And so the, the party in power, particularly the party in power in the White House, always want to spend more money. Um, and the other side in Congress wants to play the spoil sports here because they don't, they don't want um, the party in power to, to be able to claim all the credit for a booming economy. So that's one part of it, the, the story anyway. And then also, if you remember back in the 1990s and 1980s, uh, the markets were much more sensitive to deficits because people had a, a memory of what happened in the 1970s. Right. And I remember uh, Bob Rubin used to talk about bond market vigilantes. If they, if they ever pushed up the deficit at all, then interest rates would shoot up because investors would get so, so scared if they, if they ran big deficits. But that has clearly gone away. Um, and so uh, particularly if the Federal Reserve is so willing to finance the whole deal, uh, I, don't, I don't think there are any hawks left in Washington. I think the last of the hawks uh, have left the city and it's, it's just a big flock of doves. And because of that, I think you, you will see this movement to more fiscal spending. Now, it, there are political angles to it. I, I do think that uh, you know, Democrats will tend to favor uh, more uh, green spending, uh, maybe tax cuts for lower income individuals. Um, Republicans may favor uh, tax breaks for corporations um, or uh, perhaps more defense spending. So there are different priorities. But it, basically, if there's no penalty to politicians to spend more then they're taking in taxes, they'll do it. One thing I'd say is some of this sounds a little bit like what we heard in the 1960s and the 1970s, when you had this shift from the monetary policy right after 1951, independent, Fed independence, there's this period of focus on price stability, and then things kind of start to shift. And you hear this idea of, well, maybe we can buy a bit more employment by allowing a bit more inflation. And then all of a sudden that gets a little bit out of control and then you end up in stagflation in the 1970s. Obviously a very, very different global economic backdrop, but I'm wondering if there's any risk of something like that happening again. Oh, I think there is. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really interesting to think about why inflation hasn't shown up. I mean, this, this dragon has been asleep for 40 years. And what, what's been keeping it asleep? Uh, you know, part of it has been the globalization of, of, the, of trade and uh, that has certainly helped hold down the price of goods. I think the information technology has also made markets more competitive. Uh, but I think a very big part of this has actually been increasing income inequality. Mm -hmm. uh, what we've seen since the 1970s has been an increase in the share of income that is received by the top 10% of households. Now, one of the really interesting things when you look at the behavior of the top 10% of households versus the other 90% is they save much more and they spend less. 
And so what's been happening is about half the income in the United States now goes to that top 10% of households. They're saving a lot of that money, but that means there isn't money to buy goods and services. Mm-hmm. Where is that money going? That money is actually going to buying assets. And so this is why for, for many decades now, we've seen asset prices go up, stock prices, bond prices, real estate prices go up, even though the price of goods and services has not been moving up much. So it looks like we've had low inflation. But that, you know, I think that is still going on to, to some extent. But uh, we could see a situation in the next few years where a government tries to, to rectify this and tries to increase taxes on the rich and then cut taxes or spend more money mm-hmm. on uh, poorer middle-income households. That certainly could change that dynamic. And then also, when you think about the environment after this pandemic, I mean, boy, are we going to be ready to party. Uh, <laughs> and with all the stimulus pouring into the economy and everybody wants to go on vacations and, and buy stuff and, and meet with friends and have celebrations. You, you could have a big surge in demand, the economy improving faster than, than normal, and that could also generate inflation. So I think it's quite possible we will see a return to inflation if some of this trend, these trends, particularly with regard to income inequality, uh, are reversed in the next few years. I think that's interesting because you often hear right now people say, well, after what we saw in 2008, you obviously didn't see a lot of inflation. So clearly what we're doing now will not create inflation. But it does seem like what we're doing now is quite different. This isn't just stuffing money in excess reserves. You know, this is actually putting money in, in people's pockets. Well, that's right. And I think there, there are at least two other pieces to this. Um, first of all, if you remember after 2008, the problem was that the banks had been lending too much money. Right. <laughs> uh, and because of that, the banks themselves and also the regulators uh, made it very unappetizing for the banks to lend any money at all. Basically, to get a loan after 2008, you had to prove that you didn't need one. Uh, and that, while that may be very good for protecting the safety of bank balance sheets, it's not very good for stimulating economic growth. So that tended to slow the economy. And then the second thing is we did have big deficits back in the, the, the teeth of the great financial crisis um, in 2009. But actually, for years thereafter, the deficits were pulled down. First of all, they fell because of the beginning of the expansion. But after 2010, when Republicans took over the House of Representatives, they would not let the Obama administration run, run bigger deficits, even if they wanted to. And there was, there's been great constraint on discretionary spending. So we had this sort of enforced reduction in budget deficits. And that also slowed the, the um, expansion. And then finally, we had a situation where we had the European debt crisis. We had some problems with commodities in emerging mm-hmm. markets. All of that pushed up the US dollar. That also reduced inflation. So there were a lot of forces fighting against inflation in that expansion, which won't necessarily be in play in the next, next expansion. Right. Going back to a little bit of what we were talking about with this idea that we're going to be able to have more fiscal spending because monetary policy is going to keep rates low. One thing I wonder about that is if people are thinking if debt and deficits don't matter essentially because rates are so low, that will then clearly push people to take on even more and more debt. However, then if you do start to push up inflation, and it does seem if you're doing a lot more fiscal spending, you are potentially going to create more inflation. You've now created this enormous debt burden that may have seemed sustainable, but rolling all that over when all of a sudden you have to increase rates seems like you could get yourself into some trouble. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I worry about with this average inflation targeting. Um, it's all very well to say that when the inflation rate gets up to, say, 2.5%, then we're going to apply the brakes. But if you apply the brakes then through traditional monetary policy, interest rates are going to shoot up. There's no other way, nothing else could happen. 
And if those interest rates go up, now you've got a debt to GDP ratio in the United States, which has gone from about 80%, or sorry, about 80% of GDP this time last year to potentially 110% of GDP by this time next year. That's mm -hmm. an enormous jump in the amount of indebtedness. So yes, you could have a significant fiscal problem there. And then beyond that, there is a, there is a general problem with continuing to increase the money supply, continuing to increase um, liquidity in the economy, mm -hmm. because all of this is based on the idea that inflation is going to be low. Right. And once people begin to doubt that, if they do begin to doubt that, then you could have an increase in what's called the velocity of money. People start spending money more quickly. People want to buy houses, buy cars, buy, even you know, in an extreme, you, you buy basic things that you would buy normally. You try and prepay so you can buy things at today's prices and not at tomorrow's higher prices. That's something we saw in the 1970s. We've seen it in hyperinflations throughout the world over the centuries. And, and it's something to think about. I mean, you know, the, the problem is that what we're doing here is we're playing with the trust that people have in money and all the things that are denominated in money. And, and, and that trust is based on the notion, whether people realize it or not, that the central bank will limit the growth in the money supply and limit the growth in financial assets, which are denominated in dollars. And if they don't do that, there is the potential for a crash where people try and convert these paper assets mm -hmm. into real goods and services, causing a general inflation. Yeah, it, it does seem historically, when you look at the history of monetary policy, you look at the history of finance, that you always get yourself into trouble when you think that things have changed. When there's the belief that you know we've we've slayed whatever dragon was our dragon at that time, now everything is different, and then you shift behavior, and then that behavior undoes what created the situation in the first place. Well, that's right. It's it's also not quite symmetric. I mean, you know, I sort of th I think that the, the trust in money is a little bit like trust in marital fidelity. <laughs> uh, you sort of build it up over many years, but if you if you uh, violate it, it's pretty hard to reestablish that trust. Right. Uh, and, and the problem is that if people believe that inflation is going to be very high, then you end up with high real interest rates. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was really the situation that we had in the United States in the early 1980s. You have these very high real interest rates because people are sure inflation is around the corner. They want to be protected against, mm -hmm. that, against that risk. We see that in emerging markets all the time. Right. Um, so, and those high real interest rates tend to really slow down investment spending, slow down economic growth. So there's a big penalty to be paid for moving to an environment where people just don't trust you to protect the value of money. Right, and it also seems a little dangerous because obviously it's not just the government that's been taking on a lot of debt. You're also seeing corporates just taking on a tremendous amount of debt, partly probably because after the cash crunch in the crisis, people want more liquidity, but also because when it's super cheap and there's a lot of appetite in the market, people are going to pile on more debt, which again, seems sustainable right now because rates and spreads are so low, but as you say, if you start to see inflation, then again, it seems like that could get the entire economy into a bit of trouble. That's right. I mean, I don't think this is a problem for 2020 or 2021, but you know, for corporations, for investors, I think it's important to know where the exits are, have your coat and your hat, be, be, be ready to, to, to move to a position of being less leveraged uh, mm -hmm. if those interest rates look like they're about to go up. And I find one thing when, when I talk with people and I, I, I speak about you know, the, the amount of debt that the US is taking on, people often point to Japan and they'll say, Japan has had incredibly high debt to GDP ratios for so long, it's never been a problem. If it hasn't been a problem there, it shouldn't be a problem here. Do you think that that's right or do you think that there are some serious differences between Japan and the United States? Well, I, th I think that the thing about Japan accumulating all that debt is they've only been able to accumulate all of the debt because it hasn't worked. 
Um, <laughs> if Japan had ever succeeded in generating the slightest bit of inflation or enthusiasm within the Japanese economy, they'd be in real trouble. Uh -huh. um, so it's a, uh, you know, that's, that's a problem. That's a problem with, uh, with um, this, this whole concept that you can just expand government debt without limit. Um, as soon as you are successful in actually achieving any of the social goals you want to achieve, um, you will tend to push up aggregate demand, push up inflation, push up interest rates, and then you really will have a problem. And certainly, you know, Japan has been aiming to achieve normal inflation for years. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, the dog chasing after the car. You sort of wonder, well, what happens when you, when you catch it? Right. Um, and I do think that the, the Japanese could be in serious problems if that happened. And anyway, anyway, the point is it doesn't really help you that much. I mean, we need to be we need to think about the operation of the economy, the things that keep some people poor and, and other people rich, the things that make the economy grow more slowly. And we need to think about what's really going on here instead of just just trying the sort of the heroin uh, of create more and more debt, more and more easy money as a way to just float all boats um, in a way that's really not sustainable in the long run. Well, and then that makes me think of the other change we saw in the Jackson Hole statement, which was how the Fed is going to look at full employment. Actually, I'll let you explain. What, what, what did we hear in relation specifically to the employment target that was a little different? Well, I think one thing that uh, Jay Powell has been clearly interested in, and I think this has been enhanced by uh, traveling around the country and listening to um, various constituents talk about the economy, is that an awful lot of good is done by pushing the unemployment rate down to a very low level. And I think he's right in saying that, uh, of course. Uh, if you can get away with a 3.5% unemployment rate or 3% unemployment rate, it does the most good in, in the most difficult places. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the Federal Reserve is saying that it will continue to um, try to push the unemployment rate down to very low levels, again, until it sees some evidence that inflation is really taking off. But my concern is that once that inflation rate begins to take off, you're going to have more significant problems. And, and more broadly, you know, if you have an economy that is so hot that even the least qualified, the least advantaged worker is finding a job and doing very well, you're almost certainly going to have overcooked other parts of the economy. You'll have overcooked asset prices. You will have overcooked the, the wages for more skilled workers. You won't necessarily close that gap in terms of economic attainment. So I think we really need to think about fiscal policy and think about how, how do you address the um, lack of income for, for low-wage workers? How do you address... Um, you know, problems with people competing with illegal immigrants or the problems that Ill illegal immigrants themselves suffer uh, um, from very low wages. How do you address some of the inequality in society without using the very blunt instrument of just more and more money to try and inflate the economy to try and achieve that? So I think the goal is laudable, but mm. I think the tool is very blunt and is likely to backfire. Right. And, and again, it goes back to that idea that it probably makes more sense for the Fed to enable fiscal policy to help well, the, the problem is the Federal Reserve wants to be, it, it wants to be powerful. It wants to be right. moving things and changing things. And so that's, that's how it could do. And I, I do have, have a lot of sympathy in a recession. Yes, they need to just simply use blunt instruments if that's what's available. Mm -hmm. But I do think that if we want to achieve more as a nation in terms of some of our long-term goals for society, it's got to be through a carefully thinking through the tax code and various entitlement spendings, uh, spending programs and think about what is it that we can actually do to reduce poverty and to, to uh, make this a more equal society uh, for everybody uh, rather than just trying to just inflate our way there? Yeah. And one of the things we haven't talked about, and frankly, the Fed never talks about, are, is asset price inflation. And 
it's always, it's interesting to me because it seems like, especially since the 80s, many of the crises we have have been caused by asset price bubbles. You know, they haven't been caused by goods price inflation, and yet it just seems like it's it's not it's not a concern. And do you think that it makes sense for the Fed to not care about that as much, or do you think they should be looking more at what's happening with asset prices? No, I think they absolutely should be looking at this. Again, that doesn't say they shouldn't have an easy monetary policy right now in a pandemic. I think they should. But they need to look at this because what their policy all along by, you know, by not being successful in, in uh, pushing up inflation, by keeping interest rates so low, um, by, and the Washington in general, and really the federal government's more to blame than the Federal Reserve, but by allowing inequality to increase, that has been, as I said, pushing up asset prices relative to the prices of goods and services. But you think about what is a financial asset? I mean, a financial asset, whether it is a dollar bill or a stock or a bond, it's basically a coupon. Mm -hmm. It's a coupon which says that I am entitled to some part of the goods and services produced in the economy. And the problem is that we keep on increasing the number of coupons out there mm -hmm. without actually increasing the goods and services produced in the economy. Right. And some wet day, uh, people are going to say, well, maybe I'll cash it in now. Mm -hmm. uh, and when they try to cash it in, that's when people get worried. Well, maybe my stocks aren't worth what I thought they were going to worth be worth because I can't get hold of the goods and services I was supposed to be able to buy. And the, the prices of those are going up, so let me buy them quickly. Or I can't translate this into real assets. So I do worry when I see the growth, and it's a tremendous growth in the value of paper assets relative to the real goods and services being produced in the economy. Uh, and I think that is a, uh, it's a destabilizing element in our financial system. And I think the Federal Reserve really ought to pay attention to it because it's, it will someday come back and bite us. Yeah. And do you think there's also danger globally? Because there's, of course, this idea of the Fed being the central banker to the world and the idea that when there's especially easy monetary policy in the United States, it tends to push more and more money into emerging markets in, and it, you aren't necessarily getting compensated for the risk you're taking. And then also when money goes into the emerging markets quickly, it tends to come out of the emerging markets quickly. So do you think that there's, we should perhaps be a little bit concerned about what this policy could do globally? Well, I, th I think central bankers in general need to think uh, about what their, um, you know, what the long-term impact of keeping very low real rates is going to be, because I think it does, um, I do think it, it, it can cause the same problem around the world. There are other countries where, frankly, people just don't trust the central bank as much. Right. And that's actually, in some ways, a good thing. So they, you know, the, in many emerging markets, the, the public will not give, uh, and the government will not give the central bank enough rope to hang them with. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think, I think that is a, that's a positive thing. Um, but I do think that, that we need to think carefully about the relationship between monetary and fiscal policy and recognize that this is based, again, as I said, on a, on a trust that, that, that the, the financial assets you're buying, that the, goods, that the money that you're holding is going to keep its value. Mm -hmm. And I think we're pushing that trust to an extreme. Um, and eventually, if, if people lose that trust, um, I think it's going to result in high, much higher real rates of interest, much less, um, uh, you know, more, more economic uncertainty, less investment spending. So I think we really need to think about, you know, what, what are the fundamental reasons uh, for the economic problems we face um, and how do we deal with, the, deal with those directly rather than trying to solve everything uh, through low rates and more money? Mm -hmm. And you know, it's interesting in EM because in EM, there's always this fear of debt monetization and this not having an independent central bank. But now in developed markets, it's hard to argue that you have, <laughs> that you have you know, especially independent central banks when they're kind of working hand in glove with uh, 
with the Treasury. Well, that's, that's right. And I mean, I'm very worried that uh, central banks are gradually losing their independence around the world. Um, and, you know, I, th I think, you know, the Senate confirms uh, central, uh, uh, Fed governors, but they are the, at least the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve is appointed by the president. So if a senator acts as a, a rubber stamp to easy money people and the Fed decide, and the president decides that he's only going to nominate easy money people, then, mm -hmm. then you have a problem. And you, you do want an arm's length relationship between the central bank and the, and, and the central government. Because as I said, if there's no, no penalty involved, eventually the temptation is for central governments to, to um, uh, overspend, undertax, make themselves popular, and then leave the inflation problem to the, ne to the next administration or down the year, you know, in the future. And that usually does come back and bite you. Right. And, and one thing also kind of trend we've seen recently that I think clearly is related to this is this slight weakening of the dollar. And I'm curious your thoughts, because obviously we've had a pretty strong dollar for a significant period of time, but obviously now as we are printing, to a certain extent, printing so much money at the same time that the risk appetite in the world is increasing, the value of the dollar is declining. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, of course, I'd like to see a lower dollar. I mean, mm -hmm. for, for many years, I thought the dollar is too high. In fact, I think you know, people blame the Chinese or the Mexicans or whomever for the hollowing out of American manufacturing. But you could, you could make a strong case that the reason for the hollowing out of American manufacturing has been our insane insistence on a strong dollar policy. I mean, the, the dollar is not our national flag. I'm all, all for flying the national flag at the top of the flagpole. But the dollar ought to be set at a level which is appropriate for the economy. And the truth is, for years, the dollar has been too high. That has resulted in a current account deficit. It means we're buying more of everybody else's stuff. They don't want to buy ours because it's too expensive. It's hurt the U.S. economy. The dollar is still too high today. Uh, but I do think that you know, going forward, I think there is more of a recognition that this high dollar is not a good idea. Um, and so it should come down a bit. Now, I still, I don't think that the dollar is likely to collapse so quickly as to cause a general inflation because we only import about 15% of our GDP. So even if the dollar fell relatively rapidly, it would only have a, um, you know, a muffled impact on our inflation rate. Uh, but it, it could add to it. And, and again, you know, if, if all central banks are behaving the same way, then it's hard for the dollar to fall quickly. But if some central banks decide to be, be more responsible in the U.S., becomes more irresponsible at the same time, uh, then you could see a faster decline in the dollar. Again, that'll push the Fed towards its inflation target. They're going to feel happy for a while, uh, but I think it increases the risk of a, a rather sticky ending to this whole thing. Yeah. And now maybe let's talk a little bit about what happened slightly more recently at the September FOMC meetings. Would you say there was anything that happened that we heard in the statements coming out of there, the forecast coming out of there that was a surprise? Uh, not too much of a surprise. I, I, we did expect that this average inflation targeting would be sort of formalized in the normal uh, post-meeting FOMC statement, and it was. Um, but one of the things I thought was interesting is they were very specific about when they were going to raise short-term interest rates. What they said is that they will not raise short-term interest rates from the current level of 0 to 25 basis points. They're not going to move that until they actually see inflation as measured by the consumption deflator at 2% and on track to go above 2%. So that you know, it may push an increase in short-term interest rates uh, down the road a little bit into uh, perhaps uh, late 2021, 2022 at the earliest. They've mm -hmm. also 
the participants in the meeting also forecast that they wouldn't be increasing that rate until perhaps 2023 or 2024. So it's very dovish at the short end. But again, I think that the really interesting question isn't so much what they're doing with short-term interest rates, it's how long they're willing to continue to borrow or to lend this much money to the federal government. Uh, and so what you could see is a situation where inflation begins to move up. They don't move long uh, short-term interest rates, but they do slow down their purchases of treasuries, causing the yield curve to steepen. So mm -hmm. I do think one of the things we'll be watching for in 2021 and 2022 is a steeper yield curve with those long-term 10-year government bond deals moving up from they're 0.7% right now. We could easily see them move up above 1%. I think they will, in a few years, be above 2% or above 3%. So I think those yields will go up. And do you think there's any science behind the 2023 date that was thrown out? Well, the Fed is also engaged in, in a somewhat contradictory, I, I don't think it's an internally, internally logical position, but what they're trying to do is do, do forward guidance. And by forward guidance, what, they, what they're trying to say is, if we tell you that we're not going to move short-term interest rates for a very, 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 very long time, and if you believe us, then long-term interest rates will stay low. Mm -hmm. uh, but the problem is that if long-term interest rates stay low and you actually achieve your policy objectives, then you're going to have to go back in your original word. Um, right. And so it's, you know, they say, you can't both say that we promise we're not going to raise short-term interest rates and that we're going to react to the data as it comes in. Those two things are not actually consistent. And oddly enough, if the Federal Reserve actually achieved the things it expects to achieve, then it's, uh, or wants to achieve, it's targeting to achieve, then it's not going to be able to keep short-term rates as low for as long uh, as they say they're going to. And so do you think that's maybe why we didn't get more explicit outcome-based forward guidance? We clearly got, as you said, we got some, but I know there was some, a bit of a call for there to be more explicit, like more clear sense of exactly what would have to happen, exactly how high rates would have to get, exactly how long they would have to stay there. Do you think part of the reason we're not getting that from the Fed is just because, as you said, they essentially can't achieve all these goals at the same time? Well, yes. And I, I mean, I think, I think by not mentioning how they're going to taper asset purchases, I think they gave themselves some wiggle room here. Um, but they really should give themselves some flexibility. I mean, we do, if they, I mean, if, if they tell the federal government that they're going to lend them unlimited amounts of money for unlimited periods of time, just, you know, just how much do you want, uh, then that's a very bad message to send to the other side of Washington. Right now, you need the Federal Reserve to be generous. But if the economy is recovered, you need the Federal Reserve to turn hawkish. Uh, and uh, it's, you want to maintain some credibility. So I think it's fine to maintain flexibility. I really think they overstate this whole issue of keeping long-term rates low. That's not really, you know, through forward guidance. It's not really that important. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's, what's important is that they maintain some credibility here, be supportive of the economy when it's ill, but also reserve the right to uh, be tighter with the economy when it's actually doing better. And if they would just say that, I think it'd actually be more effective in stimulating yeah. economic growth and low forward guidance. I mean, after all, if you're, you know, if, I mean, they keep on promising low interest rates for a very long time, but think of it, if, if you were, you know, if, if, if you were, if I was selling oranges in the street corner and you came up to me and said, will you be here tomorrow with some oranges? I'd say, no, 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 this is the last of the oranges. You better right. buy them now. <laughs> Right. And so why is the Federal Reserve saying rates are going to be low forever? If, you, if they want people to borrow money, they should say, mm -hmm. oh, no, this is the short, rates are going to be low for right now, but not, not next year. So you better do it now. Borrow now. Put right. your house in the market now. Buy a new house now. But, uh, so it, they, it doesn't make any sense. But that's the Federal Reserve we have. Yeah. And do you think part of this is just you know, what we're seeing the Fed 
doing, not just in terms of rates being extremely low for a very long time, but everything we've seen since 2008 and everything we saw in March is just, it's unprecedented. So no one essentially knows how this, how this plays out. I think that's I think that's right, and I think the Fed, in in some senses, I think, and I shouldn't be too too uh, tough on the Fed because they, it is unprecedented, and they will admit that it's unprecedented. But then, I think they need to be more open to other voices within the Federal Reserve to really consistently second guess themselves on this stuff. Because what happens is they say it's un, unprecedented, they say they don't know, but then they quickly sort of fall into the groove of following the policies they intended to do all along. Um, so this, uh, as I say, I don't really believe in average. I don't ultimately believe in average inflation targeting. I think it's kind of like saying, well, I'm going to wear a T-shirt all winter, therefore I'll have to wear a sweater all summer, um, which I think is just silly. Um, right. And I think it actually sets you up for fall. It's actually a pro-cyclical policy, which make, makes the economy less stable. Uh, but I think that they, they just need to think at each point of, uh, in time of, of how policy is actually working and really you know, open up the hood in the economy and see how uh, monetary policy, fiscal policy, and the economy are interacting. There's a lot of uncertainty in that, but they've just got to be open to um, to different ideas and different views uh, on how to operate this. You know, obviously, since 2008, the, balance, the Fed's balance sheet has grown massively, and it will never go back to the size it was before, because obviously the way rates are uh, changed has obviously changed. The way the balance sheet is used has, has changed significantly. But I do wonder what it means to have a balance sheet this large and to see the Fed potentially have a hard time scaling that back, because we saw what happened before when the Fed tried to reduce the size of its balance sheet, and then you had issues in the repo market. Again, uh, yeah, ex exactly. And I think, again, this is something that will probably end in tears at some stage, because I, I never thought they would get the balance sheet back into balance, because they, they say they're going to, but then they're moving at such a slow pace, and, and the markets are so, um, you know, uh, worried about it whenever, whenever they re reduce the balance sheet that they, that they sort of renege on this and then give into the market again. And so the, the balance sheet could get ratcheted up recession after recession until it becomes something absolutely massive. And again, it's, it's not really a healthy thing because what they're doing is they're continuing to flood the economy with excess liquidity. Um, and that could, you know, pushes up asset prices, can cause problems in the long run. I, and I don't think, by the way, that they need to keep the balance sheet this big because again, they're, they're, they've got a, they're using a very um, it's very doubtful whether this, um, this ample reserves regime is, any, is really much, much better than any other regime in terms of monitoring short-term interest rates. And what they're doing is they're allowing, I mean, this is very technical, but they're allowing big swings on the liability side of the balance sheet to dictate the fact that they need to have all these, these massive reserves uh, when really they don't in order to, to run monetary policy. And again, they, they should try to prevent uh, the federal government from thinking they've got this piggy bank that they can endlessly dip into. And one of the big changes we've seen with the balance sheet this time around that we didn't see last time around was the movement into corporate assets, the movement into mm -hmm. including you know high yield ETFs. And obviously they haven't actually bought that much because they haven't yeah. really had to. But do you think that, again, there are some dangers there of political influence of what it means to have the Fed potentially buying corporate credit? Perhaps down the road, I think the Federal Reserve has been very careful not to play favorites in the corporate bond market, and they certainly shouldn't. Um, but what they have done is they've had, it, you know, they're distorting markets. And, you know, you know, monetarists generally don't believe that's a good idea. The idea, you know, you should let markets set prices appropriately. So what we have here is a situation where long-term treasury rates are way too low based on any logical notion of the economy. I mean, 10-year tip yields 
which uh, real interest rates are negative one percent. Mm -hmm. So why would you? Why uh, basically, if you give uh, money to the government for the next ten years, after ten years they promise to give you something back which will have depreciated by one percent per year, which is crazy. And, and so the Federal Reserve, it's kind of like an elephant sitting on the end of the yield curve. But now they're also an elephant sitting at the, on credit spreads. All these credit spreads bear no relationship to the risk actually involved in these corporations as we work our way through a pandemic. And my fear is that eventually this elephant is going to get distracted by inflation, get, get off the, uh, uh, the end of the yield curve and off the credit spreads, and they're going to bounce back up. And that is going to be a problem for corporations. It's going to be a problem for federal government. It's also going to be a problem for the people who are lending the money right now. Mm -hmm. So we've covered, I feel like, a lot of territory, but one thing we haven't talked about, and perhaps this shouldn't affect monetary policy, but we do have elections coming up. And do you think, whether it's the volatility potentially around the elections or potentially a change in who is president, if that will potentially have any impact on how the Fed is acting? Well, I think two parts of it. On the volatility around the election itself, um, you know, obviously, people in this country feel very strongly about this election. I don't think there's ever been an election in the, in the last century where people felt more strongly about it. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have heightened volatility after the election. Um, you know, if you, it, people always sort of remind me of what happened in 2000, but 2000 was a complete statistical fluke. Mm -hmm. I don't expect that to happen again. So if one candidate or the other wins by two states or more, or by a few hundred thousand votes in a state, and that's more likely than not. Um, if, if, if that happens, then I think uh, the other side will just grudgingly have to accept that that's the result and that's, that's what's going to happen. Um, so I, don't ex I do expect that within a week of the election, we'll pretty much know who won and that will, uh, um, then we'll move forward from there. And that may not mean much volatility. But I, I do think that you know, going forward into 2021, um, who wins does matter. I mean, I try to avoid being too you know, you know, there are lots of reasons for voting one way or the other in the election, but it's clear that uh, the current president has badgered the Federal Reserve more than any previous president has done. Um, he has clearly wanted people who are loyal to him to serve in the Federal Reserve. And I believe that if he is reelected, he will, he will not reappoint Jay Powell. He will replace him with somebody he feels is more loyal. And I think some degree of Fed independence will be further eliminated. Um, I think if Joe Biden wins, I expect a return to much more normal relationship between the Federal Reserve and federal government, such as we saw under George W. Bush or Barack Obama, uh, with, a, with Jay Powell probably being reappointed, um, and then the Federal Reserve trying to reassert its independence uh, and sending the message to Congress that it doesn't have an unlimited checkbook, particularly when the economy is healthy, to mm. prevent Congress or to enable Congress to avoid dealing with the really serious budget issues it needs to deal with. I think that makes a lot of sense. Though I thought it was interesting that when Biden came out with his platform, he did indicate that he believes economic equality should be on the Fed's agenda. Um, yes, I'm, I'm afraid that all of uh, Washington politics is getting infused by modern monetary theory, which is, again, is the notion that because the federal government, I mean, to me, in this case, it's because the federal government abdicates its responsibilities for dealing with issues that it can deal with through yeah. fiscal policy, they're going to tell the Federal Reserve to use a blunt instrument of monetary policy to achieve that. And again, if you make this economy hot enough so that the least qualified person in America has a job, you will have overheated asset prices and thrown vast riches uh, to, the, to the most uh, competitive workers in the economy. You won't deal with inequality that way. You'll probably make it worse, as well as building up a bubble. Um, so 
I think Jay, uh, Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve do want to achieve uh, some social goals, uh, but I think that is really a matter of, for Congress. I think we really need to think about a tax code. We need to think about things like minimum wages. We need to think about education. We need to think about social structures. There are many things we need to think about to try to deal with um, inequality in the United States. And ultimately, the Federal Reserve is not the ideal tool to try to attack those, those issues. Well, I feel I feel like I, that's probably a decent note to end this conversation, which was a, which was really interesting and really great. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you, Anna. Well, thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner. Be sure to check out BreakingViews.com and subscribe to our various audio products, including The Views Room, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fix. Thanks again for listening.